Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 17 for the first quarter of January 2012. But before we get into the topic that you already know about, since it's in the title of this episode, I want to do an announcement on the format and structure of this podcast. When I started it in August of last year, I told you that I would be doing bi-monthly episodes that were around 10 to 20 minutes each. Early on, I knew that I wanted to do one or two extra episodes here and there to cover important and timely topics, like Comet Elenine, or to put out a recording of my Skepticamp talk on the Apollo moon hoax. I got a lot of feedback requesting more episodes. In November and December of last year, I tried to put out four episodes a month instead of two. I stuck with the quarter of the month instead of a weekly release schedule, perhaps throwing some of you off. I know I wake up every Tuesday morning looking for my Skeptoid episode of the week. Anyway, I am going to try to keep this pattern going. I'm going to try to put out four episodes a month. They should come out on the 1st, 8th, 16th, and 24th of each month. I may co-opt one for a special timely pseudo-astronomical event, or I may do an extra episode on top of that. I haven't quite decided yet. Also, on length. I know I talked about this before, and my conclusions are the same. The episodes are going to be as long as it takes to get through the topic. These days, that seems to be roughly 30 minutes, plus or minus 10. I'm also going to stick with any interviews or things like that being on the even quarters of the month, like the 8th or the 24th episodes, as opposed to the 1st or the 16th. That also means that the Q&A and Puzzler will only happen on the 1st and 16th as well, It's too hard for me to come up with puzzlers every week, and so far there have really only been two Q&As that were directly asked. So with all that in mind, and that announcement over, the topic for this first day of 2012 is not about 2012. It's about some of the claims of Greg Braden, and I'm also going to be using these as an example of data mining. In this podcast, as in the entire Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, not just this episode... I've never addressed a specific person as the overall subject for the episode, or at least not directly. In this case, I am. I feel it important to note as a sort of disclaimer that in doing this, my intent is in no way to engage in an ad hominem assault against Mr. Braden, nor to say that he specifically is crazy or an idiot or is a liar or stuff like that. Instead, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction into the man so that you have some context and then get into his ideas and his claims. It's the ideas and claims of a person as well as their evidence that's the point of this podcast, not really the person behind them. That said, I may end up describing his ideas as crazy. For those of you who actually read the show notes and the transcript, you know that I do subject headings. The subject heading for this first part is Evolution of a New Ager Who Doesn't Believe in Evolution. I did a search through the roughly 165 gigabytes of episodes that I have of Coast to Coast AM that span about the last two decades. For those of you who are doing the math, that's roughly 8,000 hours, or 325 straight 24-hour days. It's a lot of coast to coast. Braden's name popped up not infrequently, 
So I started to listen to him starting with the 1999 interview conducted by Art Bell. Note that he had been on earlier shows, at least dating back to 1992, but I don't happen to have those. I listened to about 16 hours of interviews with Brayden, and then I re-listened to about half of them in order to pull out the quotes and points I wanted to use. I go into more depth on a lot of these in the blog post that I wrote, linked up in the show notes, but in this particular episode, I wanted to focus down on just a few points. However, I think it's instructive and informational to see how he's changed through the years. Based on later material, things changed for Braden in the few years following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in New York City. I'll talk more about that later. Before that time, Braden comes off really as your standard New Agey anti-establishment person. Claims that Darwinism is evil, consciousness is all that exists, quantum mechanics proves it, and so on and so forth. There really wasn't that much unique about his message. He was an advocate of free energy devices, which will be the subject of a future podcast. He claimed there was copious evidence that our DNA was currently evolving rapidly, even though he doesn't believe in evolution. And through consciousness, we can, quote, activate junk DNA, unquote, and do lots of cool stuff. And he generally ranted for four hours on how scientists won't let real knowledge out to the general public. Again, fairly run-of-the-mill, really. In the next interview that I have of him, recorded in 2006, I noticed something of a shift in Braden's attitude. While he was still hawking his books and advocating his ideas, he seemed to have shifted more towards alleged evidence for his claims and the quote-unquote research that he was doing. This was more evident in later interviews. So by 2008, in listening to these, I came to the conclusion that Braden had evolved more into a guy who thinks... Let's throw out some sciencey stuff that sounds more real than what I peddled a decade ago. And no, he didn't actually say that. That was just my impression. Again, these are my opinions. I don't want to get sued or saying that I'm committing slander or something. He makes a few interesting claims. The first one that I want to address was during the second hour of the 2008 interview. It was the journal Nature, a gentleman named Silvertooth. Uh, reproduced the Michael Sil- Morley. Silvertooth? Uh, Silvertooth is his name, yeah. Uh, reproduced the experiments uh, in, uh, in 1986, the same experiments that Michelson Morley did um, back in 1887. And it's in the, the journal Nature, for people that know. It's a very prestigious journal. Sure is, Volume yeah. 322, August 1986, page 590. Silvertooth, under the auspices of the United States Air Force, reproduced the nearly 100-year-old experiments done by Michelson and Morley, the results of his experiments show that there is, in fact, a, a field of energy that connects everything in our world. And, and the field was found to exist within the same parameters predicted 100 years earlier by Michelson Morley. So uh, this should have, should have made the, the cover of uh, you know CNN and, and Time magazine, but people just aren't talking about it much. First, some background, which I'll also be linking to in the show notes. Back in the 1800s, physicists knew that waves needed something to travel through, like sound waves need air or water or something else. But they couldn't figure out what light waves travel through, and so they invented something called the ether. Michelson and Morley were faculty at the Case Institute of Technology in Cleveland, Ohio, and they set out to measure the ether. They designed an experiment that they thought would show the properties of the ether. 
Instead, it showed that ether did not exist because light traveled at the exact same speed in whatever direction they measured it. The only way that that could happen is if ether didn't exist, or if there was a very special reference frame at Earth where ether stood still instead of Earth passing through the ether that was throughout the universe. The simplest conclusion is that ether did not exist, although to this day, people claim otherwise. Hence, Silvertooth's apparent peer-reviewed paper in Nature. As to that, first off, the Nature article is actually from August 14th, not August 28th, but I'll forgive that in this case. I will note that in many of Braden's interviews, he gives references to papers and authors in the scientific journals and literature, but in almost all of the cases that I heard, he always made some mistake, either in the year or the volume or the date or the page or something else. In fact, one was so far off that I simply couldn't find it. I couldn't find the authors, I couldn't find the subject matter, and I searched within a year of when he said it was published. So either it doesn't exist or he gave something really wrong in his citation. This is something that you should watch out for when trying to evaluate claims. Always go to someone's references. If they don't exist, there's a problem. Moving that aside like the ether, though, the problem Braden doesn't talk about is that this was not an article that Nature quote-unquote published. It's a letter that they included and spans less than a third of a page. In it, Ernest W. Silvertooth claims to have conducted an experiment that proved there is an ether through which light propagates, disproving general relativity and the famous Michelson-Morley experiment. Interesting. It's a letter to the editor. It's not peer-reviewed. It presents no data, no evidence, simply says that Silvertooth did it. Silvertooth's name shows up on antirelativity.com, and the only way that he actually got a paper out describing his stuff is by publishing it himself. And yet Brayden claims that this is undeniable proof that scientists won't let the secrets of the universe out, and that this guy irrefutably showed that these standard ideas are not real. It's kind of like if I got a letter to the editor published, claiming that the sky is green and grass is purple, and then Braden would then use that as irrefutable evidence that the sky is green and grass is purple. It's really the exact same thing. However, he takes this a step further to say that the ether is not just a medium through which light travels, rather it's a general consciousness field in which we all exist. This is an example of taking a term that has a very specific meaning in science, ether, and changing it around to mean something else, much the same way that energy is used by New Agers, but again, that's a topic for a future episode. 2001, scientists were measuring uh, the geomagnetic fields of the Earth from two satellites, one in the Northern Hemisphere, one in the Southern Hemisphere, called uh, GOES, the GOES satellites, geosynchronous orbiting uh, satellites, I think is what they're called. Right. Every 30 minutes, they send back a signal that tells the strength of these magnetic fields. And, you know, it fluctuates, but it's always within this range. And in 2001, all of a sudden, there was a big spike in these fields, and scientists said, well, you know, what happened to the magnetic fields of the Earth to create this change? Well, they overlaid the data onto a calendar, and it's probably no surprise to our listeners that the date was September 11, 2001. And it was... 15 minutes after the first plane struck the first tower 
in the World Trade Center that the magnetic fields of the Earth showed this big spike. And the scientists are saying, what's going on? That led to a series of studies that showed that it was the collective emotion of humans on this planet that had such a profound effect on the magnetic fields of the Earth that our satellites, 22,000 miles above the surface, detected the change. And these scientists said, whoa, that means that we are literally, not metaphorically, not figuratively, but we are literally part of the fields that sustain the life on the Earth. That led to a series of experiments that now has shown that when many people learn to create this quality of emotion inside of their hearts, that the magnetic fields of the Earth convey this change to all life on the Earth. And that is what I think the opportunity of our time and history is all about. That two-minute clip introduces the second claim that I want to talk about and the case study of data mining that is the second subject of this podcast episode. The bottom line claim here is that Earth's magnetic field was altered by human emotion during the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in New York City. This is similar to claims by the Global Consciousness Project, but different. The nice thing is that it's highly objective data that's easy to find and check, which I did. I even contacted the institution that runs the GOES satellites in order to get a bit of help and information, so thanks goes to Dan Wilkinson and to Ted Haberman. For a brief background, GOES are and have been many different satellites, and they're periodically launched and decommissioned as one wears out and the technology advances. We're now on GOES 11 and 13 as the two main ones, although GOES 12, 14, and 15 are in orbit. In September 11, 2001, GOES 8 and 10 were in operation. It looks like there were some issues with GOES 11 at the time. Those satellites orbit Earth at about 6.6 Earth radii from the planet, and our magnetic field extends to about 10 Earth radii, and so it is correct that they can and do measure the magnetic field, though they do send back data that's binned in 5-minute intervals, not 30-minute intervals as was claimed. The data that Braden and others present at their Global Coherence Initiative, or Institute, is the exact image that I'll link to in the show notes. It looks kind of interesting. The magnetic field of Earth is varying between about 50 and 125 nanoteslas in the four days leading up to September 11th, 2001. It then spikes by about 50 nanoteslas to 173, as seen from one of the satellites, and it spikes to 153, as seen from the other. Then it seems to vary slightly more than it had a few days earlier. Maybe we have something here. Actually, they are not making up the data. The data do show that spike. You can view it for yourself, and I'll link to the data in the show notes. So now the logical question in evaluating the claim is, they're showing a week-long window. What does the data look like at other times? What's the normal variability? What are the normal spikes? To avoid any idea that they might claim contamination due to the craziness of September 2001, in order to answer this, I chose a random month and skipped back to June 2001. The data that I show in the show notes, again, all the data is online and they're linked to in the show notes along with graphs, the variations that are normal are between about 60 and 125 nanoteslas, 
again agreeing with the September 2001 baseline that they showed. But in the random month of June that I chose, there were spikes all the way up to 186 nanotesla, higher than the September 11th data by 15. Hmm. In fact, since I was able to get the data in my grubby little hands, I actually could do some basic statistics. The average from GOES-8 during the June 2001 month was 113 nanoteslas. From GOES-10, it was 97. The average deviations were about 11 and 15 nanoteslas, respectively. In September 2001, the averages and deviations were pretty much identical. September 11th, was not odd. September 2001 was not odd at all. I then chose a different month and a different random year, January 1998. The Global Consciousness Project people would probably say that they would expect to see at least two significant events during January 1998 because both the U.S. Congress taking office for the new U.S. Congress, new elections, as well as New Year's Day. But again, that's a different episode. I also chose November 2007 as another random sample. Both of these months' data are displayed in the show notes. The maximum were 173 for GOES-9 in January 1998, but a minimum of only 22, and 188 in November 2007 with GOES-11. The inescapable conclusion is that this is at best window shopping or data mining. At worst, it's willful deceit of the audience. I can't read minds. As is clearly shown by these data, the September 11th, 2001 quote-unquote spike in Earth's magnetic field is not an abnormal spike, but rather we see fluctuations even larger than that several times a month over pretty much any month that I chose to look at. And that's really what data mining is. Braden presents a very good example of selecting only the data range and the type that shows what he wants to actually see, and then he completely ignores the rest. Now, as I said, Greg Braden has many different claims covering many different things. A lot of them have to do with physiology, biology, and then standard New Age energy stuff and consciousness stuff. That's not really the subject of this podcast. Instead, the subject of the podcast is astronomy, geology, and physics claims. So I've addressed two of the ones, the main ones, that Braden specifically makes, and I've also used it as an example of what data mining is. This week's question comes from Parrot, who asks, in a slightly reworded way, In episode 13 on the true story of Planet X, the puzzler question you asked was about how we think a planet should be defined. The implication was, how do you make a lower end cutoff? But I got to wondering about the other end of the spectrum. Should gas giants be considered planets? They're certainly not the same kind of thing as the Earth or Venus. Should they perhaps be in a category all their own? Has there been other discussion about that in astronomical communities? I somehow doubt that I'm the first to have these thoughts. You're correct, Parrot. You are not the first to have these thoughts. But it really is the low-end cutoff that we have more disagreement among the astronomical community. On the upper end, the generally agreed-upon cutoff is really any kind of fusion. Full-on hydrogen fusion requires a mass 
of about 80 times Jupiter, but there are other lower pressure and lower temperature fusion processes that can happen. Namely, lithium fusion will happen in objects that are about 60 times or more the mass of Jupiter, while deuterium fusion will happen in objects that are about 13 times greater than the mass of Jupiter. Normally, we set the line between gas giant and brown dwarf at this 13 Jupiter mass point, where objects lighter than it are gas giants, and heavier ones are brown dwarfs. Objects that can fuse hydrogen, ones that are 80 Jupiter masses or larger, are considered to be full-fledged stars. That wraps up this somewhat short Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback, still related to getting to the galactic center or the galactic equator within the next year, I got an email from listener Jeff, who pointed out that I read listener Aaron's feedback about crossing those 50 light years in just one year in our reference frame, but I didn't actually say whether or not he was right. He is right. If we were to somehow able to get our solar system up to a you know, pretty close to the speed of light, bigger than 99% the speed of light, we would be able to get to the galactic plane and cross it within a year as measured by a clock in our reference frame. So yes, it is possible for this to happen, but I've not seen anyone actually claim that it would nor provide a mechanism for suddenly getting the solar system up to over 99% the speed of light and then decelerating it back to normal speeds of a few kilometers per second. I would think that any mechanism that would somehow slingshot us that fast would do more damage than crossing the plane of the galaxy, but that's just my opinion. In terms of feedback related to last week's topic on the galactic equator and what the sky looks like on December 21st, 2012, and all this alignment stuff with the galaxy, I'm going to read a few feedback points from my blog. The first comes from Survival Mom, who states, Regardless what happens on 12-21-2012, we all know something will happen eventually, so it is a very wise decision to prepare for it the best we know how. If nothing much happens in December, be prepared to purchase cheap survival stuff in early 2013 to add to your stash. True survivalists will always capitalize on every possibility. In fact, Survival Mom linked to a sale site for survival gear that I deleted. Apparently, she was also attempting to capitalize on that opportunity. My response to Survival Mom was, There's a difference between generally being prepared for a disaster and claiming that one will happen on a specific date because of a certain alignment in the sky that won't actually happen and even if it does, lacks any mechanism as claimed to cause anything that people say it will. Somewhat confusing, but basically, there's a difference between survival and being prepared, and a difference between being scared of a date that's not going to bring anything bad. Mike from the blog tells me, It is the Earth that crosses the galactic plane the center of that sort of flat disk we call the Mickley Way. If we go above it and below it every 26,000 years, the sun will, and here's a likely word, appear to rise in the center of the Milky Way. Apparently he doesn't know how to spell Milky because he keeps spelling it Mickley. 
In other words, the sun will eclipse us from the center of the galaxy, our mother, our father, our creator. Then, when you are cut off from your energy source, you will go totally insane, being completely unprepared for your starvation of unknown sustenance. Low consciousness being. I'm not going to comment on that. Billy Joe McGovern says, I understand what you're saying, but how are we to know if anything strange will or will not happen? We are, as a race, not recording any written language 26,500 years ago. Maybe there is a gamburst or rado signal that can just hit us on that angle that day. I don't believe any of this hoo-ha, but keep in open mind the human race has never witnessed this day on December 21st, 2012 before, and recorded it, or have we many cultures say on that date something happens every 26,500 years, maybe through stoic telling of cave fires, we pass down a human race experienced phenomenon, is kind of weird all those old cultures who never talked have the same date and views mankind won't go all away but maybe the truth has growing pains during this trip through the middle of the milky way maybe there is a gravitational pull from some unknown black hole or holes we don't know but try and keep an open mind a stubborn mind is an easily beaten mind my response to billy joe mcgovern is there is a difference between one keeping an open mind Two, saying that something will happen based on someone's predictions. Three, saying that something will happen based on apparent alignments. And four, saying that something could happen just cause. You seem to be advocating one and four, which are fine for your purposes, but the purpose of this post and this podcast episode is arguing against three, saying that something will happen based on apparent alignments. There is no alignment in how the sky looks. Jack wraps up the feedback for this episode by stating, How can the human being, who's only been alive five minutes in cosmic time, know more than the very highly advanced Pleiadian, Andromedan, Arcturan messengers who live hundreds of our years and are already in the future and have already witnessed this and much more? Lol. Now it's time for the puzzler where each episode I ask a critical thinking question, or attempt to, based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. There is a widely propagated myth that you will find in many media outlets every March 21st. It states the vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere is the only day out of the year that you can balance an egg on its end. Let's assume the myth is actually that you can do it on either equinox. Can you come up with an actual force that would in any way help you balance an egg on its end on the equinox? Parrot, from the SGU message boards, was the only person to attempt this puzzler, and he was incorrect in his response. There really is not anything that would help balance an egg on one end during equinox, unless you also made the qualifier that you're on the equator. If that's the case, then the fact that the sun will be directly overhead only at noon would help you very, very slightly to balance an egg on its end. But that teensy tiny bit of extra help would not amount to much at all. This week, with the main segment on Greg Braden, the puzzler deals with one of his claims that I didn't really talk about. One of them is that the magnetic field put out by the heart is 5,000 times stronger than that of the brain. The human heart. 
the, the strongest biomagnetic field in the body is generated by the human heart. It's 5,000 times stronger than the brain. First, is this true? I'll warn you that you need to be very careful in defining your terms on this one. The second part of this puzzler is that Braden claims that because the heart is where we have our feelings and beliefs, and that we communicate these through the magnetic field of the heart, which connects to the broader fields around us. I swear I'm not making this up. So the second part is based on this. If the field strength of the human heart is 10 picoteslas at the surface of the human body, at what distance from the surface of the chest is the magnetic field of the heart equal to the field of Earth if we take the average value of Earth's magnetic field, 100 microtesla? And with that in mind, does any of what Braden claims here make any sense? Try to figure out the answers? Send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next episode on the 16th of the month. By way of announcements, the biggest one other than the whole format thing of the podcast that I talked about at the beginning is that I was interviewed on the Center for Inquiries Point of Inquiry podcast for December 26th, 2011. The episode was about 2012 claims, and it's about 40 minutes long. This means that I talked more briefly about claims than I do in this podcast, but I covered more of them. I'll link up to it in the show notes for this episode. That wraps up this topic for the 17th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends, family, frenemies, pets, old-school chums that you don't talk with anymore, and random Facebook acquaintances, you know, those people who friend you and you have no idea who they are. Thanks again. Bye for now.